So to introduce this, I want to start with Jesus' words that I just mentioned in Matthew 7, where he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this is a commonly misquoted, misunderstood verse, particularly in today's culture. You see, according to culture, we shouldn't judge anyone at any time for anything. But that's simply not what Jesus is saying here. You have to keep reading to establish context and correct understanding of what he means. So this is what the following verses say. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now that last sentence there could probably do with a sermon all of its own, but just to make clear that Jesus is speaking there in reference to those who hate the truth. This is not a contradiction of what he said a couple of chapters earlier in Matthew 5, 44, where he says to love your enemies. Okay, that's, this is not a contradiction there. This is particularly talking about people who hate the truth. Okay, so Jesus is talking about judgment, but he's talking about judgment from a place of hypocrisy and condemnation. We are to judge correctly out of humility and love. Think about it. Okay, we can't discern who are dogs and who are pigs if we don't make some kind of judgment. Further down in the same chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus talks about false teachers and he calls them wolves. Judging correctly is necessary to discern true teachers from false teachers. It's simply not logical to not judge. Culture wants to scream at us not to judge, but everyone judges. We make judgments about people every day. In fact, to tell someone that they shouldn't judge is to judge that they are judging. Okay? Now, to take it even a step further, I think to not judge is not loving. Think about this. If you, ha- if you or I have a brother or sister in Christ who's involved in some sort of destructive behavior, it's the loving thing to call them out. It may not be easy. It may not be well-received, but it's the right thing to do. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus also gives us clear instructions for confronting sin, but it's to be done humbly. So all that to say When Jesus says, do not judge, and when James here warns against judging a brother or sister, it's imperative that we understand what they mean. This has nothing to do with confronting sin. We must confront sin, but we must not judge from a place of hypocrisy or condemnation. As we walk through this today, I hope that we'll all come to a better understanding of judgment in the life of a believer, how it's to be done and how it's not to be done. So, on to point two, which is really point one, okay? James starts off here by saying, speak no evil. James says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, as we've walked through James over the last couple of years, I've mentioned before that there are about 50 commands in the book of James, and this is another one of them. He's emphatic here. Do not speak evil against one another. That phrase, to speak evil against, is the word for slander, which is why I've kind of titled the sermon today, The Sin of Slander. The dictionary defines slander in this way. It is the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. In other words, it is the malicious intent to lie or twist the truth about someone or something that they may have done in order to harm their reputation and standing in society. I read this week that the the Old Testament speaks against the sin of slander, either slandering the name of God or slandering another person's name more than any other sin. So that in my mind makes this a big deal. And so in light of that, I want to take a look at the scriptures and what they have to say about the sin of slander. And so I'm going to jump pretty quickly through a variety of passages. And so if you grew up doing Bible drill, you'll really like this challenge. Um, If not, that's okay. The references are going to be on the screen and I encourage you to write those down and take those home and maybe look at them later today or later this week. We're going to start in Proverbs. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Three out of those seven things that God hates have to do with how you speak about other people. A lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Exodus 23.1 You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. This is reinforced by Paul in Ephesians 4.31 where Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. What Paul's talking about there are sins that destroy personal relationships, one of which he mentions is slander. He says all those sins that destroy personal relationships must be put away. Listen to what God says to the wicked in Psalm chapter 50. This is verses 19 and 20. He says of the wicked, You give your mouth free rein for evil. And your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. This basically describes slander as a characteristic of wicked people. It's almost an addiction to them. Now these are strong words from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9. I want you to listen to this. These are God's words describing his own people. Not a foreign nation, but the children of Israel. Listen to how strong this, this is. Jeremiah 9, 4 through 9. 
Let everyone be aware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Strong words from God for his own people. It's as if slander is a way of life for the wicked. Jesus spoke to this as well, Matthew 15, verse 19. He said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus associated slander with the violent sins that come out of a wicked heart. Scripture also talks about the devastating effects that slander and defamation can have on a person. It's a couple of examples from Proverbs. First Proverbs 16:28 says a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 17:9 Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, in addition to reading some of those, I wanted to mention also just some examples that we have in Scripture. Examples of slander. The first one is an example from the life of David. And I'm just going to summarize this, but if, if you want to read it later, take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 10. So at the beginning of this chapter, we find out that the Ammonite king has died. And his son, whose name is Hanan, takes his place. And David wants to deal, the scripture says, loyally with Hanan because Hanan's father had dealt loyally with David. So David sends some of his servants to Hanan to console him following the death of his father. But those around Hanan planted seeds of doubt into his head. Here's what they said to him. Do you think because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father. Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanan's closest associates lie to him about David. They maliciously slander the motives and intentions of King David. And so Hanan, in response, believing his close associates, took David's servants He had half of their beards shaved off and he cut their clothes off in the middle and sent them away in shame. David hears about this, sends instructions for his servants to stay in Jericho until their beards could grow back. Because in that society at that time, a beard was an important thing. It was an important part of a man's identity. And so they would have felt immense shame in going back to their 
people looking the way that they looked. Now, to make a long story short, this led to an armed conflict. The Amorites called on the Syrians to come help them because David's army was approaching. And David's army dealt severely with both the Amorites and the Syrians, and tens of thousands are left dead, all because somebody lied. Another example, 1 Kings 21, we have good old King Ahab, who was anything but good, if you know history of the kings. He wanted a vineyard. He wanted a vineyard that didn't belong to him, but one that he found to be very beautiful. Uh, It belonged to a guy named Naboth, and Naboth refused to give King Ahab the vineyard. Well, Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, who was perhaps worse Then King Ahab concocts a plan where two worthless men, this is what the scriptures describe them as, two worthless men, bring a charge against Naboth at this gathering that they had put together. They brought a charge against Naboth saying that he had cursed God and the king. As a result, the men of the city drag Naboth outside of the city and they stone him to death. So a good, innocent man loses his life over slander. And Ahab gets his vineyard. The whole story of Esther is based on the slander of Haman. Haman slandered the Jewish people with the intent of wiping out their entire race. And then probably the worst example of all, Matthew 26, 59 and following. says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The whole execution of Jesus came about as a result of slander and lies. A number of weeks ago now, Doak covered this in John chapter 8, but Jesus said this in John chapter 8 verse 44. He said this of the religious leaders. He said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. At the heart of slander is the father of lies. In fact, the word devil in the Greek is the word diabolos and it translates to the English word slanderer. He is the slanderer. So let's go back now to James. The command here in verse 11 is very clear. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So I come back very quickly to what I said earlier. This does not mean that we are forbidden to hate sin. It doesn't mean that we are forbidden to expose sin. It doesn't even mean that we are forbidden to name sinners who will not repent. 
In fact, the scriptures, in the scriptures, this kind of discernment, this kind of exposure is commanded. James here actually uses a present tense verb that is continuous. He's essentially saying, do not go on speaking evil of one another. Which seems to imply that this was something that was happening. And so James is addressing this by saying, this has to stop. And then he says this, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother. He repeats the verb for evil speaking, and then he adds the thoughts of judging. And as we said earlier, it means to condemn someone. This is what James is warning against, condemning someone. It's not an evaluation. It's a condemnation. This is the added factor of slander. Slander is to speak evil. And then you go one step further and you actually become God and you sentence people to judgment. That's the thing. That is the very thing that Jesus was condemning in Matthew chapter 7. And that's what James is condemning here. This is the behavior of the unrighteous. Now if you remember these verses from Romans 1. We read Romans 1 the very first week of this year. Romans 1, 28 and following says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to have been done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a list. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is behavior that should be completely and totally alien to the Christian. A pure heart and a renewed mind And the love of God shut this sin off. So James is saying here, do not do this. Don't slander. Don't play God and condemn people as if you were the judge. This kind of slander or gossip or backbiting runs in stark opposition to the humility that he has called us to in previous verses. The Christian life is to be marked by humility. It's also to be marked by love. James mentions the word brothers three times in this verse alone. We can't and we must not treat family this way. The Apostle John expounds on this a little bit in his first letter. 1 John chapter 2, 9 through 11 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Further on in the same letter, chapter 4, John says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He doesn't beat around the bush there, does he? 
He goes on to say, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If your heart is right before God, you're going to see other believers as brothers and sisters. Again, this doesn't mean that you don't point out sin when sin is there. It doesn't mean that you don't discipline when discipline is called for. But what it does mean is that you don't lie. You don't gossip. You don't backbite. You don't slander. You don't defame other people's character with malicious intent. In Matthew 12, Jesus says these words, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These two verses in James speak of the issue of slander, the sin of defaming other people. And in line with those words of Jesus, what you speak in your mouth indicates your heart. And habitually speaking evil of other people betrays an unchanged heart. So the tongue and the speech of the tongue is a test of true faith. We saw this earlier in James and He's revisiting this issue of the tongue yet again. Jesus also said in that same text in Matthew 12, verse 37, he says, By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, you might say, well, I thought I was justified by grace through faith. The reason that Jesus can say this is because the words that come out of your mouth reveal the condition of your heart. So let's keep going in James. James says, Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law. You are not, excuse me, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So what's this business about the law? Well, let's think about this. As James writes... I think he writes in a very logical and reasonable way. And I think you, you kind of see his logic as things unfold. Do you remember Jesus' answer to the lawyer who asked him a question in Matthew 22? A lawyer came to him and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds this way. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Did you catch that last phrase? On these commandments, on these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the law can be summed up in these two commandments. And what's at the heart of both commandments? Love. Now follow me with, follow this line of reason here. Since loving each other as brothers and sisters is God's law summed up, when we fail to love, we violate God's law. That's what James is saying. So when you slander your brother or your sister, you slander the law that forbids you to do that. When you condemn your brother or sister, you condemn the law that forbids you to do that. 
Condemning and slandering the law means that you disregard it. You judge it unworthy of your attention. Which brings us to point three. I've called this point the law of love. And I want, for the next few minutes, I want to borrow something that I came across um, over this last couple of weeks from John MacArthur because I found this to be very interesting and I think that you will as well. In fact, I think it kind of changed a bit the way that I look at the law. And what I want us to do is I want us to go back to the Old Testament. So I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Now, when I say Exodus chapter 20, many of you will know right away where we're headed. Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses on Mount Sinai. John MacArthur said this in what I read this week. He said, I want you to understand that the Ten Commandments that you perhaps learned as a child are nothing more or less than ten ten features of love verbalized. If that doesn't make sense, just hang with me and let's walk through these commandments together. Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. That's a statement about love. Love is loyal. Love is loyal to its object. Be loyal to me, God says. If you love me, you won't have any other gods. Love is not fickle. Love is loyal. Love is single-minded. Love is undivided. Second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Sorry. I already read that one, didn't I? The second commandment, I got lost in my notes. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of of those who love me and keep my commandments. Secondly here, love is faithful. Love is faithful to obey. Love is faithful to obey the object of its affection. It is loyal in spirit. It is obedient in behavior. That's a characteristic of love. Third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So thirdly, love is respectful. Someone you love, you don't misuse their name. You don't desecrate their name. You don't run their name through the dirt. Love is respectful. It speaks to lift up. It speaks to exalt. It speaks to honor its object. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the seventh day is to be a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So fourthly, love is set apart. Love is dedicated. Love is sanctified. Love, in a sense, is reverent, if you will. But I think the main idea here is that love is dedicated. Love is so devoted that there are times when it gives all its attention to its object. Love is loyal. Love is faithful to covenant and obedience. Love is respectful. Love is devoted. These first four all relate to God. And these all relate to what Deuteronomy 6 says. Love, your, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now as we keep moving through the Ten Commandments, starting in verse 12, he turns to love among men. And he says, first of all, in verse 12, Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Love is submissive to authority. Love is submissive to parents. Love is never rebellious. Love is never lawless. Love is never ungrateful for what parents have provided. Love is never hateful. Love is never resentful. Love is always submissive to its object. So what he's saying is, submit yourselves, children, to your parents, which is to say, if you love your parents, that's not even an issue. You'll do that. Next, you shall not murder. Here's another principle of love. Do you kill somebody that you love? Not hardly. Love is never murderous. Love upholds the sacredness of life. Love would never take away the object of its affection. Next, you shall not commit adultery. So love is pure. Love never seeks to defile anybody. That isn't love. That's anything but love. You see, love exalts the purity of its object. Love treats its object with sacred reverence. Next, you shall not steal. Love here is selfless. Love is giving. It doesn't take, it gives. Love is unselfish. Again, it's a principle of love articulated as a command. Next, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In verse 16, love is truthful. Love would never lie because love would never want to falsify. Love would never want to give somebody the wrong impression. If you love somebody, you want them to know the truth. If you love somebody, you want them to know exactly the way that it is. So do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That doesn't fit with love. You're not going to lie about your neighbor if you love your neighbor. You're going to tell the truth. Why would you want to slander your neighbor who you love? And lastly, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So love is content. Love doesn't covet anything that belongs to a neighbor. Why? Because love loves the neighbor. 
So you see in these Ten Commandments, love is loyal, love is faithful and obedient. It keeps covenant. Love is respectful. Love is so devoted and dedicated that there are times it gives itself wholly to its object. Love is submissive to those in authority, not rebellious and lawless. Love is protective of others, never murderous, but always upholding the sacredness and the right of someone else to live. Love is pure, never seeks to defile. Love is unselfish, it always gives and does not take. Love is truthful. It has no pleasure in a lie because it seeks only the best for its object. And love is content. Content with what it has and would only wish the best for someone else. Love your neighbor as what? Yourself. If you love your neighbor like you love yourself, you'll submit, you'll protect, you'll keep their purity, and so forth and so on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, Paul said something similar in Romans 13, 8. We read this as a church just a couple of weeks ago. He said, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. These may be familiar verses as well. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's from 1 Corinthians 13. There's a lot in common there, I believe, with what we've looked at in the Ten Commandments. So do you see what James is saying to us? What he's saying is if you slander your brother or sister, that's not love. And if that's not love, then you've broken the law. James says here in chapter 4 that this kind of speech speaks evil of the law and condemns the law. In other words, it shows total disregard for the divine standard that God has set. All sin, not just the sin of slander, all sin violates God's law. All sin asserts that the sinner is above the law. And that brings us to point number four. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Let me get back to James. Verse 12, James says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. The point of these scriptures that we've looked at and many other scriptures is that God is in charge of eternal destiny. God is the lawgiver. He is the one who applies the law. He is the one who condemns. And He is the one who saves. The point here is this. When we sin, we try to rise to the point of deposing God. And that is why sin is so hateful to Him. And why 
it should be to us. Now, if this sounds kind of foreign to you, it's because in our society today, we have such a watered-down view of our sinfulness. We see our sinfulness in the tiniest of terms. We even brush it off that way sometimes. Oh, it's just a little lie. Sometimes our theology is so weak, and when it comes to sin, we pass it off as if it were just a small thing. William Barclay said this. He says, It is a reckless man who deliberately infringes on the prerogatives of God. And that is what we do every time we choose to sin. James finishes verse 12 with a question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, I think he's asking, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? He's just told us that there's one lawgiver, there is one judge. And that is God himself. So who do you think you are? Both of these verses are linked back to the passage that we looked at last time, which last time we were in James was in November. But back in verse 6, James says, God gives grace to the what? God gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, he calls on us to humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt us. Humility and dying to myself are inseparable. If you have picked up on anything about me over the last few years, I like quotes. Um, and I like a good quote. And I found a couple this week. One, this is by A.W. Tozier, and I think he hits the nail on the head with this. Listen carefully to what he says. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among believers today. We want to be saved, but insist Christ do all the dying. Andrew Murray put it this way, Many Christians fear and flee and seek deliverance from all that would humble them. At times they may pray for humility, but in their heart of hearts they pray even more to be kept from the things that would bring them to that place. Humility results in a life of dying to self. And that's the life that Christ has called us to. When Jesus said to take up your cross, he didn't say take up your cross from time to time. He didn't say take up your cross when you feel like it. He said take up your cross daily. 
And that, by the way, was a command. It's not an option for the believer. It's not an option for me. It's not an option for you if you are a Christ follower in the room today. Jesus was humble. We read about his humility in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. Death on a cross. And he calls us to take up our cross. To die to self. So in all of this today, James has kind of focused in on the sin of slander. But I think he's also pointing at a much bigger picture, and that's sin in general. Sin is a big deal. All sin is a big deal because, as I said earlier, all sin violates God's law, and all sin asserts that the sinner is above the law. Sin reveals what we think about other people. It reveals what we think about the law. It reveals what we think about God. And it reveals what we think about ourselves. Sin says to other people, I know better than you. Sin says to the law, That doesn't apply to me. Sin says to God, I'll take over for now. And sin says, I'm the man. Sin is a big deal. And I want to close again with another quote. And this is a a quote again by A.W. Tozer that one of my college professors shared with us in a class my first semester. And I've never forgotten it. Because the first time I heard it, it just kind of hit me between the eyes. This is what Tozer said about sin. He said, sin is when I sit on the stolen throne of my heart and claim I am. I wanted to kind of illustrate this as we close today. And um, this is the closest thing I could find to a throne. I brought this from home. But this is, you can pretend with me that this is the throne of my heart. Okay? On the throne as a follower of Jesus is God. Now, This is not an image. We're not worshiping this. We're not violating the second commandment that we talked about earlier. It's simply an illustration. God sits on the throne of my heart as a Christ follower. I am. Sin is when I sit on the stolen throne of my heart and claim I am. 
Let's pray.